Hey everyone, welcome to Pieces of You, a show about life through the lens of four fierce and resilient women who lost their moms too damn soon. Each episode will feature stories to inspire hope, healing, and connection. Because if we work together, we can make the broken better. Hello, this is Sarah, and I am your host for today's episode, where we will be discussing intimate relationships. I am joined by my lovely co-hosts, Christine, Aaron, and Shadia. As a reminder to our listeners, our podcast contains a content warning related to the topic of mother loss. In other words, the stuff we talk about is heavy and can be triggering, so please check out our show notes for a more detailed description. All right. Why don't we get started? How is everyone feeling today? I'm yeah. ready to talk about this. I'm, I, I really have no idea where it's going to take us, so I'm curious to see how it unfolds. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. I don't really know what's going to come up today, so I'm uh, looking forward to finding out. And I am looking forward to having this discussion with all of you on intimate relationships, specifically in the context of early mother loss. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to really break down this concept of intimate relationships. To that, I turn to Mariana Bakarova, a psychology professor and researcher out of the University of Toronto. She writes about seven elements which are present in healthy, intimate relationships. I'm going to go through these briefly. And at the end, I'm going to ask you to take a moment to reflect on them. The first is going to be knowledge. This is how willing you are to let someone into your inner world. This is really about honest and open, vulnerable communication between two people. The second element is going to be interdependence. This is a healthy give and take, not to be confused with codependence, something that I am very sure is going to come up later in this conversation. Um, Codependency is going to be this feeling of really needing the other person, whereas interdependence, as Mariana describes, is, again, a healthy give and take. The third element is care, and how this is displayed is going to vary based on the individual. At the end of the episode, I am excited because we are going to take some time to really explore how each of us prefers to receive and show love and affection, um, otherwise known as love languages. And so, yes, I think that really ties into this third element, which is care. The fourth element is trust. Mariana says, this is really the most important of all seven. It is It is what holds the other six components together, and it's the confidence we place in another human being to act in a way of honor and fairness that is to benefit us, or at the very least, that our partners will not cause us purposeful harm. So it is really placing that trust, that confidence in another person not to hurt us. The fifth element is responsiveness in regards really to each other's needs, being available, being attentive to one another, being there when when they're really, really needed. The sixth element is mutuality. My understanding of this um, is 
viewing the relationship as an entity of its own, something that needs to be tended to and cared for, that really takes work. And essentially, this is shifting away from the more individualistic perspective of I and coming into this communal stance of we and coming together around this almost shared contract of tending to this living, breathing relationship that has been created. And then finally, we have commitment, which is really just a desire for the relationship to continue indefinitely. Now, I know this was a lot of information. I want to give you a few moments just to let it sink in, to let it digest. I'm really curious, you know, what are your first reactions to this list? That list of seven is, it, it makes so much sense to me. It feels right on. I love that number four, right in the middle of the seven is trust. Is that intentional? Did she do that on purpose? I love that. It's like she says that that's the most essential thing, and then she puts it right in the center. <laughs> I love that you noticed that. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it uh, feels very metaphorical. Symbolic. I think I expected them to be different. Um, like the first one was knowledge, and I was like, what? What does that mean? You need to be smart together? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I think I was just going, um, I immediately went to like, intimate, um, like sexually. And so like, that wasn't even in the mix of this, right. Which I found really fascinating. And I a hundred percent agree that all these other things play into that, but that, yeah, there, it was just really kind of mind blowing. I think everybody should have this before they get in a intimate relationship. They should know these things. <laughs> You're not wrong. Like, honestly, it's, baffling to me that I didn't learn so much of this until I went to college to study, to become a a therapist and how studying relationships like and learning to help other people actually really helped me learn about myself. And then eventually I figured out that was why I went to school to study that in the first place. But Anyways, I, I learned so much in in undergrad and grad school studying psychology and concepts like attachment theory that allowed me to be able to make sense of, like I said, my own experience and how the loss of my mom and then all of the secondary losses, you know, that we've talked about in other episodes and the trauma just compounded into me being extremely insecurely attached by the time I was in college, like learning about all of this. Um, it's crazy because it it's like I was able to eventually look back and see why I had been gravitating to the same types of people who were just emotionally unavailable or um, made me feel like bad about myself or why I kept finding myself like in situations where I felt like I was just being abandoned over and over, um, like emotionally. And so like, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say it took me until my 
late 20s and like years of school to realize this. And even once I had all the information, you know, it's taken me years of therapy and processing to start to integrate it. And I'm still integrating it. So if I can offer anything, I feel like it's information. Um, I mean, in addition to my story, my personal story, I I would love to be able to just share um, a little bit about attachment theory, which is this idea that the earliest bonds we form with our caregivers go on to impact us for the rest of our lives. The central theme of this is that if you have a caregiver who is available and attentive to your needs most of the time, again, no one's perfect, um, but if you have someone who is there for you, you know, majority of the time, this allows a child to develop a sense of security, which then allows them to feel safe going on and exploring the world eventually on their own. Um, it's just, it's fascinating for me to think about that in the context of mother loss. And by fascinating, I guess you could also say tragic, but um, yeah, I'm just, I'm so curious. And especially for Christine and Shadia, you both are now parents yourselves. And I'm just so curious what that experience has been like for for you both, you know, as motherless daughters and also as motherless mothers. I would love to just share here that when I first became a mom, I had an idea of how I was going to mother and that would be letting my kids cry it out in the crib and um, kind of this um, widespread path of parenting where your child needs to be independent very quickly. At least that's in our Mm -hmm. culture. That did not feel natural to me at all. Once I became a mom, really quickly became associated with attachment parenting. And there's a doctor um, that's really well known for books on attachment parenting. His name's Dr. Sears. And a really dear friend of mine shared some books with me shortly after I became a mom and all of it resonated. It felt just natural to me. Like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. When my baby cries, I respond immediately. Um, They're not spoiled because I do that. Or, you know, they're not um, working me because they need that or because right? I mean, this is natural. They're infants. They they don't have that idea in their head yet of manipulating me or something. And then the other thing is like wearing your baby a lot and then breastfeeding if that works for you um, um, so that there's that physical connection with your baby. So the idea behind that is to create that healthy, secure attachment that you're talking about. And then ultimately, when the time is right for your child to become independent, they can do so confidently because they know that you are there, that you are present, that you are properly attached to Mm -hmm. them. So again, something I fell into, not I, I didn't try to find this type of parenting. It's really what felt natural for me. I really don't know how that's playing out yet for my kids, by the way. I don't know how it's playing out, but we'll see. It also resonates for me, this idea of healthy, secure attachment, because there have been so many times when I've thought about those formative years, like you're talking about, Sarah, like the zero to five 
where I'm so grateful my mom was present in that time and so solid and nurturing because I really wonder if I didn't have that healthy, secure attachment in those years, the path I might have taken otherwise once she died. Yes. Yes. I was going to ask, actually, if, Shadi, I know you have something to say, and I'm curious if you feel like you had a secure attachment as a child. I did have a parent who was very, both both parents, but my mom specifically was very present. I don't know if she did attachment parenting, what, whatever. She, she was there for me. I mean, she served me in all the ways that I needed emotionally, physically, developmentally. I think that's like seriously why I could even go on after that is because I had that instilled in me about how I was loved, how I should act as a child, what's the appropriate ways. Like, I feel like she kind of made me more mature than I should have even been for however she did that. So I think that really helped me. Simply, I mean, a lot of parents think that, you know, they have to do all these like special, you know, like fancy parenting things. And in reality, I think like from what I've learned, the most beneficial thing you can do for a child is like be present with them emotionally, physically, and not all parents can be that. So that's okay too, but it really doesn't take much more than that for a kid to like really feel seen and like their experience is valid. Yeah. And I will say as much as, you know, uh, after my mom died, like the normalcy that I'm explaining, going back to romantic relationships. I mean, maybe I've always been boy crazy too, but I very much depended on boys in my life to fulfill that void and to feel secure and safe. I kind of have my whole life, um, but specifically um, after my mom died, I mean, that was just a complete replacement and not just the the boyfriend, but the, their family too, you know, just to like feel some normalcy and also lean on uh, my boyfriend's moms anyways. So I feel like Christine has that same experience. Maybe you guys do as well. I definitely um, felt the need to be validated by boys. And I was kind of boy obsessed, you know, Shady and I were joking, not funny, not funny about at our mom's funerals, how we were like scoping out if the boys that we liked were there. That's real. Um, (laughs) little bit of shame about that, but not, yeah, I'm not going to let that go. (laughs) It's only embarrassing. Just a little, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. You know, but looking back at my real, my first real relationship, I honestly, it was amazing. And actually, you know, I think I've said that I I haven't felt safe since my mom, you know, since my mom has been here. That really that really struck me when we talked about that. But I I will say in that relationship, I did feel safe and really loved whatever love can be for a 17, 18-year-old girl. I felt that and he was my best friend. I sabotaged that relationship and I've never had a connection like that again. So I think that it's really interesting to be 
thinking about this and looking back at that time. Um, yeah. Interesting. When you say you sabotaged it, what do you mean? I don't know. I really, I couldn't do it. I went to college. He was still in high school. He was a senior when I went to college and I just felt like, you know, I had in my, my head this idea, like, I can't be with the first person I'm in love with, you know, like I'm not, and we talked about that at the time. And then once I got to college and I like, I was talking to new people and meeting new people. I was like, what am I thinking? Like, you can't end up with a person from high school. Like, that's just, I need to experience more things and more people. And I sabotaged it. I, I, I ran it to the ground and I, you know, I think some of it too, though, is that I was really hurting in regards to the loss of my mom, but also stuff that was happening with my dad. It was very confusing time. Um, but I mean, the truth is it was, it was, he was always amazing to me and cared for me. Like I look at that list and I was like that, (laughs) the trust, the care, the responsiveness, um, even at that age, the commitment, even knowledge, interdependence, commitment, all of it that was there. Yeah. I think there's something about, you know, that person in high school, whether you're a motherless daughter or not, like your first love that will always hold a place for you specifically for me, because that person was there that saw all the things and felt all the things I was going through during that time. Like my husband, who is not that person, he wasn't there. He doesn't know what happened, what it felt like, how I was alone a lot of the times. And my husband didn't fulfill that, but that boyfriend at the time did. And even through infidelity, I would still want him back. You know, like nothing mattered. I just wanted to have that person that knew me so well and was supportive. I just did not want to lose anybody, whether that was a friendship or a boyfriend. I was just terrified of losing another person in my life. I can really relate to that, like feeling of, for me, it's like desperation of not wanting to let go of people or things. And I'm just sad that I gravitated towards such unhealthy relationships for so many years. I don't even want to say it was the people themselves. I think for a long time I've been like, oh, it was like the person, you know, I, I chose these people that were bad, but it's, it really was like the timing and our dynamics that were just really toxic. And for me, I know that it was fulfilling, like Shadia was mentioning, it was trying to fulfill this void that I felt. And also I wanted to be seen and heard so desperately, like, like really seen and heard. Like I wanted my pain to be seen and heard by someone because I wouldn't share it. I didn't feel comfortable sharing it with friends or family. And so I had this fantasy of like a man that would be able to, like I could show that to and share it with. And they would just, it, it very much like that kind of Prince Charming thing. Like he would just save me. And and in order to be saved, I had to be really broken. And so I would do things that would continually kind of break myself down, like make decisions that were really, I, I looking back, it's like I put myself in such dangerous positions, I think hoping that someone would save me. It wasn't until I chose to save myself that I found a partner that I don't need to be saved by, but I just really enjoy 
and love being with. I think it's interesting that you guys are talking about um, like Shadi and Christine, like your first, like your first love, like your first relationship, especially like after like your mom died is like something that you hold dear because I don't hold mine dear. And I was with him before my mom died and he was there with me. And I think I've talked about this before too. Um, We had a moment where two months after my mom died, he picked me up after school and he confessed that he cheated on me at a party. And I had a moment where I chose to stay in the car with him and make it work. And it was a moment where even when I was in that moment at 16, I recognized it as a pivotal moment for me. And I actively chose to be complicit in someone breaking my boundaries and disrespecting me and showing me through their actions that I was not worthy. Therefore, I did not think that I was worthy of anything better because I was comfortable and because this person already knew and I didn't want to have to, you know, do that again. And it was such a detriment because it was something that I remember of like, like me accepting people breaking me down and crossing my boundaries and me adopting that as my outlook on myself through intimate relationships. That was the moment. And I spent my entire senior year developing a relationship with my guy best friend and then cheating on my actual boyfriend and like me perpetuating these toxic behaviors to people. And that was actually what I hold dear was like this guy friend that I was like sleeping around with, not my actual boyfriend who I was dating because it had gotten so toxic. And I adopted those toxic behaviors because this person was giving me this validation Mm -hmm. that my actual intimate partner couldn't give. But I was so afraid of being abandoned again by anyone. I was so desperate to hold on to any relationship, no matter how toxic because I couldn't stand being left alone emotionally with myself. I couldn't stand another abandonment. I had felt it happen with my dad. It happened with my mom. There was no safe space with any other family to talk about these things. And it perpetuated into, you know, after that I dated someone who I had gone to high school with and we had been friends and we developed a relationship past high school. And I thought I was going to marry this guy. I was 20 And again, I think it was a timing and like we became toxic to each other and he broke my heart and he crossed a lot of my boundaries and made me feel bad about myself. And like continuingly to see that in my like serial monogamous relationships that I've had just like these same patterns over and over again. But like, I don't remember any about anything about my first love or high school relationships being near and dear to my heart. Like they're triggering for me to remember. I think about the relationships that followed after this person in particular. And I really have to say, I don't know how much it was about the loss of my mom, but really the dynamic with my dad. And I think I talked about this previously that, you know, there was really this role reversal in my relationship with my dad. I came to recognize that the way that I was going to be loved was that I had to show up for everyone else emotionally and not take care of my own needs. And so that's an, that's what ended up happening after that that first real relationship with pretty much everyone 
else that followed. Not not pretty much everyone else that followed. Um, so I had several serious relationships after that, and then the one with my husband. And you know, again, it played out in that that same way in all of them. Beginning to notice these patterns and cycles that we fall into in relationships is so incredibly important. A theme that I'm hearing throughout a lot of our stories is this fear of abandonment, which, duh, makes so much sense. We were abandoned as children. So if we look at the research on attachment styles, we'll see that, you know, this fear of abandonment and a lot of these other feelings and experiences we've been describing fall really neatly into a category called ambivalently attached. Kind of a funny name, but sadly it develops from a childhood where where love and affection were inconsistently given. And so in the present, it can look like having a constant need to connect or to be close with your partner. You might feel anxious or insecure when your partner is absent You might feel unlovable or undeserving of love. You could be overly anxious to please others with little thought of yourself. You might find yourself constantly thinking about the past. You often give too much and then grow resentful when it is not returned or appreciated. You keep score and the list goes on. Every single one of those things I have felt in relationships and it's something that through things like self-soothing, like talk therapy that I've been doing that I work through. And the fact that I've, I don't know if I want to say overcome, but I've worked through all of those complexes of mine. It's the only reason I'm able to have like the healthy relationship that I'm in now. So all of this like relationship trauma that, and not wanting to be abandoned, like led to me having a really emotionally and mentally abusive relationship in my early Mm twenties. And when I think about that, There's not a time where I don't also think about if like I hadn't have lost my mom and had all of these like fears of abandonment and that trauma hadn't happened, whether or not that abusive relationship would have been something I would have gotten myself into as well. I think about that a lot when I process through relationship trauma. I think about a lot of how all of these things culminated in I was abandoned by the loss of my mom. And I still feel like ashamed of myself for even getting myself into that abusive relationship. And I don't think I've ever even told like family, like they even met him. Like, I don't even think that I've ever really shared like really publicly, like that that's what that was. Um, that's why I acted that way. That's why you never saw me. Like, that's why, um, because I feel ashamed And I feel like it was my fault if we're talking about, you know, because like all of those negative things that you just listed kept showing up for me Mm -hmm. and they just became habits and patterns. And I think about how maybe like through not having lost my mom at the age that I did and then losing an entirely safe space to process anything, if that would have prevented me from eventually getting into a very abusive relationship. I think about that a lot. It's so interesting you say that because I I haven't had that exact thought, but when I do, 
like that is my fantasy almost. Like I, I don't want to say like like I love being with Tony and I love my life right now as it is. And I also am really sad and mad thinking about all the wonderful, secure relationships I could have had potentially in my life. And I, I do feel like I've grown a lot from the I keep using words like insecure and dysfunctional and unhealthy. And I don't like the pathology that's like inherent in a lot of these, like you're saying, Aaron, it's um, the blame should never be put on really. I mean, I don't think, I mean, we have to take accountability, but at the end of the day, it's like the blame game doesn't really help anyone. So it's for me, it, this information removes the shame because it gives me a, tangible, concrete reason why things happened the way that they did. And I think that shame that you talk about, I I 100% experienced that and still do today. I just have to keep reminding myself and working in the field that I work in is really affirming in that way of just knowing that it's human to be violent sometimes with our words, with our actions. I think we can do things that are really destructive because of our pain. And it's not necessarily okay, but it's the reality. And we just have to like be able to look at that in ourselves and other people as well and remove ourselves from situations that are unsafe and recognize when we're perpetuating them ourselves. But when you're in it, it's like impossible. I think, I think the hardest thing for me to like where I feel the most alone and I, you talking about this, Aaron, is like just so validating because that shame prevents us from sharing these experiences with each other and then feeling like they are really unique and something is wrong with us. And um, I know nothing is wrong with us. Also, I was going to say, Aaron, that even if this at your core, you would have been in that same relationship, let's say, you still would have had a mother that you could have come talk to or probably would have called you out and like who else is there to listen? I mean, when, when your mom comes to you and says something doesn't feel right about your relationship or whatever it may be, that could have changed the trajectory of it, whether it was going to happen or not. You know, I, I, and maybe not, I'm just, again, this is like the, the fantasy conversation, but I imagine that too, like who I am is who I am. And I might've still made the decisions that I did or been with the people that I was, but I would have had like this parental figure that probably could have stepped in. Right. Like I still might've stayed in the abusive relationship, but at least there would have been somebody there who like loved me so deeply and intimately who could have maybe like assisted me or even assisted me in processing it afterwards. Mm -hmm. Right. And it could have been so much smoother of a recovery period. So true. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The breakups, right? Like, man, <sighs> I just wanted to have like my mom to be there and just give me soup and just let me cry and watch TV shows with me, you know, mm-hmm. but let's just pull it together because let's need to be productive human beings and act like you, you're fine and you're independent and you're good to go. <laughs> That's how I reacted. Uh, yes. And thus stems the origins of fierce independence, as we talk about so often amongst each other, us motherless daughters feeling this sense of 
you know, we can do this on our own. We got this. I don't need any help. And this pride that's wrapped up in that. Um, but I really do think that it it's born out of necessity because, as you're saying, Shadia, you know, there were times when we couldn't lie around and be taken care of. Uh, we had to get up and figure it out. And uh, that's that's a whole nother episode. But I, I really do want to hone in for a little bit on this idea of of you all now being on the other side of this attachment relationship. Christine, you know, I'm really curious how this has been for you as the mom of a teenager. I'm wondering how you've been able to possibly help her navigate painful relationship situations like breakups. I personally haven't faced this yet. I'm I'm not a mom, but I anticipate this being incredibly difficult. I have to be honest that in the past when they've had issues, I really have uh, tr- I've encouraged her to trust her intuition and I, I don't I haven't said much. And this time she asked me what she should do and I I was very clear. And I, I have to think somewhat inspired by the conversations that we've had specifically about boundaries and letting her know that this is not acceptable and it's important for you to set this boundary with him and that likely his behavior really has nothing to do with you. It's not Mm -hmm. even about you. It's about him and the needs that he has is his insecurities, all of those things. And I, I, you guys, I have literally thought this exactly what you're talking about. If I didn't say those things to her. I wonder if I would have just said, go with your gut. I, I really wonder if she'd circle back and she might, right? Ultimately she might, but I said to her, like, you deserve better. And, you know, I actually put myself in that position, rewind. What if I had that? If someone had said that to me along the way, I, and Aaron, I similarly had a, an emotionally abusive relationship in my early 20s. And I wonder, I wonder, like, what would that have been like to have a sounding board, someone to call me out in a real way? I so desire my kids to explore who they are and make decisions for themselves. But sometimes mothering requires saying those really hard things. Mm-hmm. I just thought back to the very beginning of us recording and talking about those like seven factors in a healthy relationship and the trust thing. I'm like, well, in the relationship that I had with my mom, all seven of those were also present and like trust. I keep thinking of trust and this trust between a mother and a daughter, a mother and a child. And like, I had that innate trust and never ever have I had that innate trust with anyone else in my life except for my mom. And I probably will never. With my current partner, that's a different level. And I think it'll be different like if and when I have kids, but like I will never have an innate trust with another human being the way that I did with my mother. And and like maybe if like other people had tried to talk to me about it, maybe, but there was a lacking of that innate trust in any other mm-hmm relationship that I had. And I think that's the big difference for me. That lack of trust you're describing makes so much sense. It's 
really crazy. I hadn't thought about it in that way until just now, but I did have people coming to me in my life who were sharing their feelings and trying to steer me in, I think, like healthier, better directions. But I just couldn't hear it. Like I, I had the hardest time taking in what they had to say and I felt very defensive. And, you know, I'm really wondering and it's feeling like this lack of trust could be a reason for that. And, you know, not feeling like I can really trust anyone else, which really stems also, I mean, I don't know if it stems from, but it it exists at the same time as I also am aware that I, I don't feel that I can trust myself even. I know that now because it's something that I'm working on healing and being able to build trust. But yeah, if, if I couldn't trust myself, then I can definitely see how I wouldn't be able to trust others, you know? And so the advice and the feedback that I was getting just, I, I couldn't hear in the loving and compassionate way that it was meant to come across. I also think that plays into my relationship now, like with trust. It's, it's not that, I mean, he's very trustworthy and we do have trust, but it's me who doesn't let him in like I should, because I'm just terrified of allowing that trust and that type of relationship to even be comparative to my, to my mom's. I'm just so protective of myself and not wanting to probably truly be vulnerable in a lot of ways, which we've talked about this. This is like no secret, but (laughs) yeah, like I I'm an open person, but I also terrified of being hurt. So I think sometimes if I put my my true self out there, it won't be accepted, you know? Yes. Shadia, 100%. I do think it's a little interesting how we decided to start a podcast to put ourselves out there and be super vulnerable despite it being so terrifying. And I know we've all talked about this off air, how intense this experience has been emotionally. It reminds me of this concept that I heard Brene Brown mention of having a vulnerability hangover where I mean, in this case, it's it's like I'm making the conscious choice to, to share a lot of details that are uncomfortable to share in hopes that it will help not just me heal, but maybe some other people out there too. I don't know. But in being vulnerable, you know, I'm using energy and I'm using internal resources that would maybe be spent elsewhere. And a lot of pain and trauma are coming to the surface, which also take away energy and make me feel tired and drained. And so this is, you know, you're kind of getting the sense of like what this vulnerability hangover might feel like. And I've been feeling that a lot lately. I feel that recognizing that is important and making the choice to continue is, you know, I think that is something that we should all stop and consider at times when we do notice things taking such a large toll 
on our mental and physical health, you know, to really stop and ask, like, do I need to continue this or is there another way I can do this? I'm always evaluating that in every aspect of my life. And it can be really hard to do that. But I also think it's empowering to know that we have choice. And so I am making the choice to do this very difficult, painful work, um, which takes a toll on my body. And so I think, well, I know it is so important to nurture myself and give myself love in that process. When we think about the five love languages, I'm not sure if all of our listeners are familiar. I know we talked a little bit about this beforehand, but the five love languages are words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, acts of service, and gifts. Just for example, my love language is quality time. And so you have that, you add a little physical touch, you've got a 90 minutes, you know, maybe a deep tissue massage in there. Like, I'm not kidding. That is my number one favorite act of self-love, getting a massage. I'm curious, you know, for all of you, how do you show love to yourself, to your partners? Showing myself love through words of affirmation is something that I realize that I need. That's an internal dialogue that I need, but I struggle with it. I struggle with affirming myself in my head. Yay, therapy, (laughs) helping me through that one. Uh, So I'm trying, I'm trying to learn how to do that with myself. It is difficult, Um, but I realize that it really fills me up in ways that have been lacking. So trying to work on words of affirmation for myself, but I spend a lot of quality time with myself. I love it. But yeah, with partners, it's always any sort of actionable thing. So quality time, acts of service. With my partner now, his love languages and how he receives them are different than mine. And so it's constantly an evolving learning experience to be in a relationship where their love languages are different. And I'm not used to providing that, or I don't think to automatically do that because that's not how I receive love. So um, it has been a growing experience and I think continues to bring us closer. And I hope that it will continue on that path. Yes, Erin, you bring up such a good point. I know that for me in the past, it has been difficult to have really direct and vulnerable conversations with uh, partners early on in the relationship. But I will say that with Tony, my current partner, I made the choice and the effort to be as vulnerable as possible early on in the sense of letting him know what I needed from him and trying to ask what he was looking for and needed in a partner. I I think it is so important to be clear on the ways that you need love and affection and to advocate for those needs regularly. Let's turn to Christine, though. Tell us about your love languages. Man, mine, mine is quality time. That's what speaks to me, and I think that's what I give as well. But I'm empathetic, so I'm also aware of what people need often, and I will work to give you what you need. <laughs> if your love language is different than quality time, but that's my preference. That's what mm-hmm. I gravitate towards. What I need is acts of service. 
-hmm. like when my husband cleans the kitchen, (laughs) I'm like, yes, now do you want to go make out? (laughs) (laughs) So hot. (laughs) So hot right now. We talked about a lot today. We discussed what elements are most important in an intimate relationship, such as trust, commitment, and mutuality. We learned how experiences of relationship trauma and parental abandonment contribute to the larger picture of our stories, why we traverse certain paths and not others, and what paths we may have traveled had our mother still been alive. I invite you, our listeners, to take some time to reflect on your own earliest experiences with your caregivers. Was love something you could depend on, or was it mostly unpredictable? How was love shown to you by others? How do you prefer to receive love now? As always, thank you so, so, so much to my badass co-hosts, Aaron, Shadia, Christine. It means so much to have you show up and share your stories. A huge thank you to our listeners for tuning in and sharing this very vulnerable space with us. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to information discussed in today's episode. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode where we'll be talking about friendships. We release new content every other Tuesday and you can listen wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also find us at piecesofyoupodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook at Pieces of You Podcast. If you love our pod, please rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It would mean a lot. Take care of yourselves. And remember, if we work together, we can make the broken better. When you feel like you need glue to put back pieces of you, then we will work together to make the broken better. When the wounds are fresh and new and you don't think that they'll heal soon, you gotta stay open. If you share your story, it will get better. Though it doesn't feel like ever and you'll get stronger. It's a journey we'll get through together.